Hi, my name is Fiona Zeiger. I am Amanda Linkar. And I'm Julian Schaap. You are listening to the, the Migration Podcast. Culture and Inequality Podcast. Podcast. Yes, you heard correctly. You get two for one in this crossover podcast series. Migration, culture and inequality are closely entangled and these entanglements are exactly what we are going to speak about in these three episodes. We will focus on three topics, sports, music and media. The link between sports, music and media with culture seems evident. But what do they have to do with inequality or with migration? Usually we associate topics like work, the housing market, conviviality in the city, family life, education, or more recently, health, with issues of inequality, mobility, and migration. In part, this is because these topics get greater attention in public debates. But what about the things that surround us in everyday life, that we take for granted so much that they have become invisible to us? What about cultural practices such as music, sports, and media? This is exactly what we're going to explore in the following three episodes. Stay tuned. In this episode, we will discuss the linkages between race and sport with a particular focus on racism in football. My name is Jacob van Sterkenberg. I work as an endowed professor in the field of race, inclusion and communication in football at Erasmus University Rotterdam. Football is often seen as a fun and healthy practice, which is evident when looking at the many, many people, young and old, who practice football on a weekly or even daily basis at grassroots level. Football, at the same time, it's also an important form of entertainment, attracting massive audiences who watch their favorite player and professional team in front of the television set, social media or YouTube. This popularity of football applies to many countries worldwide, in particular men's football, but increasingly also women's football. Another aspect that characterizes football is the racial and ethnic diversity of players on the pitch. Especially within professional men's football, we see players of many different ethnic and racial backgrounds. Today we will talk about how race and ethnicity actually gain meaning within football, with a particular focus on some of the problems related to racism in the professional game. And this leads us to the overarching question that is central in this podcast, and in this conversation, how do race and ethnicity gain meaning within European football in the 21st century? And a very important sub-question, how does racism manifest itself in the game and what can we do to fight it? To talk about this, I have invited two experts on the topic, Manu Anselma and John Oliveira, and I leave it to them to introduce themselves in more detail. Um, Manu, can I start with you? Can you introduce yourself? Yes, so Manu Anselma, um, I work as a researcher um, at the Amsterdam UMC um, and at the Mulier Institute. Um, at the Amsterdam UMC, I focus on participatory research and also on um, uh, inclusiveness in academia. Um, and at the Mulier Institute, I do um, research on in an exclusion in sports um, and also specifically on racism in football. Thank you, Manu. And the Amsterdam UMC, so that is the Amsterdam Medical, University Medical Center, right? Academic Medical Center, I, I, I assume. And then the Mulier Institute is indeed a Dutch sports research institute uh, in the Netherlands. Thank you. Um, and John, uh, yeah, same question for you. Could you um, please introduce yourself? Uh? My name is John Oliveira. I'm a publisher of an uh, independent journalistic 
platform and magazine called One World. We write about human rights, identity and climate justice. And I'm part of the, the National Art Council. And, um, and one of the reasons why I'm invited for this uh, podcast is that I'm chair of the board of FAIR. And FAIR used to be there for football against Western Europe. So we got like an uh, European organization uh, with um, all, well, say we're active in 60 countries. We got like 140 members all over Europe and we're situated in London. And that's one of the reasons why I, I, I love to be um, uh, part of this conversation. Now, it's, it's, it's great to have you here, um, Manu and John. Um, first... Like I said, we, we will talk today about uh, race and football with a particular focus on racism, on the problem of racism in the professional game. Recently, we have again seen how um, racism, races its head in, in, in football. In the Dutch football competition recently, the football player NDIA was racially harassed by a few fans from the opposing team. And the fans made monkey noises towards this French player of Senegalese roots, with Senegalese roots at the end of the match. Well, when you heard this, um, Manu, maybe I can start with you. When you heard about this uh, uh, event of racism in Dutch professional football, what did you think? I mean, will it ever stop? What, what, what was your idea when you heard about this? Um, yeah, I think uh, let's start by saying that it's, it's horrible that it's still happening. Um, and it hurts every time that um, when we hear uh, a story like this. Um, um, what you see in uh, in this case of racism, uh, which is a bit different than previous cases, um, is that there was uh, quite immediate action by the referee um, um, and also afterwards by the club who uh, imposed a sanction that certain um, so-called fans uh, could not uh, enter the stadium anymore. Um, and also the player got a yellow card that was later uh, suspended by the uh, Dutch Football Association. Um, so that's at least a, a bit of a positive note that at least something is happening um, and that uh, more people take uh, it seriously. Um, but yeah, the fact that it's still happening, that's the main problem. Um, and, and I think it also raises the question, uh, do we solve it um, by... Um, not allowing perpetrators in the stadium for a certain am uh, amount of matches um, or yeah, what is a different uh, way to, to really solve the problem? Yeah, solving the problem, John. I mean, like you said, you um, are the chair of the FAIR network, right? You're part of the board. Uh, FAIR is doing a lot on the European scale, scale against racism uh, in European football. So, so what do you see on the European scale? So I, I just brought up this yeah, event of racism, this racist incident in the Netherlands. But of course, it seems as if we have seen a lot of racism within football in the past years uh, on the European scale. What's your impression? Has it increased or do we just get uh, pay more attention to it? I think um, media helps. Um, uh, that means there is more attention for this uh, subject. That has to do, of course, with the penalties as well. And with the observer scheme, FAIR is, uh, 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 has got like an observer scheme. So that means that in every time there is uh, national uh, games or international games or uh, on club, on Champions League or uh, level, 
uh, we observe what's going on in the stadiums um, and we make a report and that goes to the, um, uh, the, the, the Justice Department of, uh, of UEFA um, or FIFA, depends uh, on, on what level you are playing. Um, uh, if you look at the reports that we make, we see uh, developments more on the Eastern Europe that um, there's a lot of uh, racism um, um, and reporting uh, racism is uh, getting more momentum. Um, and I believe that the more progressive countries, let's put Netherlands, Belgium, uh, UK, um, there's more and legislation. I'm, I'm happy that the Netherlands got like a whole program. Uh, to battle uh, racism, and that and that's I think is one of the first steps, acknowledging that there is racism, and not only because of the media perspective, but acknowledging it as an FA, and that means that it will tickle down within the organization. So, uh, coming back to your questions, a uh, question I think uh, we're we're making progress. We see first small little steps, but more on the progressive countries, and I hope in due time that. And I say the less progressive countries will follow. And, and what about if, if I just take a step back, right? So this was, uh, of course, related to a particular thing. Yeah, an event of an example of racism that happened recently. But if we take a step back and look at football as a, as a general practice, football is very diverse in terms of the players, especially professional football players come from different countries. They have different racial backgrounds. But also we see this on, on the amateur, on the grassroots level. Players have different backgrounds. So how do we, how should we see football? Is it more uh, a place where inclusion takes place? Can we can we really um, yeah increase inter-ethnic tolerance through football, or is it more a place where racism takes place, where the negative sides uh, happen? Can you reflect on that a bit? It's a more general question, but just how should we see football? The thing is, um, what I think that's the positive, but also the negative side of football is it's a part it's it's, it's a reflection of society. So let's first of all start there. So that means that we shouldn't be surprised that there is racism in football because in society is racism. So that's my first account. What you just mentioned about uh, the difference between on the pitch and on more the positions of power. So if you are um, uh, managing a club or that you're managing an, or coaching an, um, uh, a football team or um, there's a difference. I think we did like a research with Erasmus University, um, say eight or seven years ago, and uh, and monitoring that since since then. Well, around 40, 50 percent. Yoko, you have the exact figures. Um, are uh, players from um, within B or different cultural backgrounds, but that's on the pitch. Uh, but if you see, uh, if you look at uh, all the, um, say, manager, ma- management positions, then we see a totally different, a different uh, landscape. So that means that if you look at uh, player of, say, coaches, uh, coaches still at this moment of time, uh, between 96 to 98 percent are still white. And, and and of course, me, of course, I say of course, <laughs> hear me, and male. So um, uh, so this is one of the problems. And I think if you look at the managerial position, so um, on the overhead position, it's it's almost the same. Uh, you see the same uh, same structure. So I think that the institutional racism is really a place still in football. And is this 
uh, a lot different than say in our general life. So I th- I don't think so, um, and that's one of the reasons why we need to acknowledge this and try to combat. So that's if I understand you correctly, football has different sides to it, right? And indeed, you're right. I did research myself as well with Erasmus University on on the coaching and the leadership level. But what you're saying that's basically what you're saying. That's one side of football, which is very white and masculine. And then we have the players on the pitch, and there it's more diverse. Uh, but we see, don't see this diversity reflected in the higher positions in football, in the power, powerful positions, right? Exactly. And that's a, in a way that's a problem. That's that's what you're saying. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a, a big problem because we already know that how diverse the workplace is, and how safer the workspace is, uh, the better the results. So I think there is an, another reason why clubs should be more diverse, but also national teams, but also the organizations. Um, uh, um, uh, because this will help to make an, um, an a, a, well, it's not only only a better to do, but also it will help in the, the best results. Yes, now, and, and Manu, if, you, if, you, if I take it back to this general question, how does race gain meaning within football? I mean, Yeah, does football, let's say, facilitate racial inclusion? Does it give a positive connotation to race? Or does it more result in all kinds of negative effects like racism? What's your your view on that? I think we have long looked at sports from the positive side. And we saw it as like a happy environment where everyone uh, is seen as equal and uh, and sports is the language that everybody plays. Um, But... I think especially um, because of the uh, enlarged attention to racism in society at large, um, we actually see how ingrained it is in society and in football as well. Um, and, I th- and, and what we notice more and more is um, how normalized in football it is, like in the language that how players talk, talk to each other especially on the grassroots uh, level, um, how fans um, talk about the players of the team they're supposed to love, but they, uh, but when you hear them talk, you think, I'm not so sure. Um, so it's, um, so I think sports and football, especially because it is so multi-ethnic, it definitely um, has opportunities for all different kinds of players of all different uh, ethnicities, because there all there are players of ethnic mi- minority background also on the highest level. So yes, it definitely brings opportunities, um, but we should definitely also uh, look at um, and try to improve, uh, yeah, the normalization of racism in uh, in football. And if you then, because you're also pointing um, out a very interesting aspect, I guess, that is also the language being used, for instance, by fans who talk about the players. Yeah, what kind, can you give examples of? You're saying that sometimes fans talk about players uh, and they are supposed to support those players because they are players from their favorite team. But then if you hear them talk about players, then you kind of, yeah, you're surprised because uh, they talk about it in, 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 in ways you wouldn't expect. Can you... Yeah, provide examples of that. For, for what kind of language are you then talking about that fans may use or that other people within the football industry may use mm-hmm. that, yeah, that are unexpected to you? Um, well, we, we started the conversation with um, uh, the r- racist 
chant that they were towards uh, a, a black player. So that's a very clear example. Um, but also um, people talking about that black guy, uh, the N-word still being used. Um, and what we also see from research that we've done on the grassroots level is that um, people in leadership positions in um, uh, local clubs, um, they identify uh, racist remarks uh, more last year than they did in 2019. Um, and we don't think that it's actually happening more, but that people have become more aware of it happening. Um, uh, so, so that's at least a positive note that uh, people are becoming more aware of it. But I think that's definitely something that um, needs so much more attention to, yeah, to make people aware of what they're saying and how the people they're saying it to can feel when, um, yeah, when they are treated in, in a certain way. So let me add something to that. I mean, I go, uh, I just went recently to, uh, to some games and it's an interesting point that uh, Manu was making about grassroots uh, football. And uh, I've can f uh, um, I recognized at, um, from firsthand. Um, what I see uh, a lot happening is that all, all, already at a younger age, um, you already see that some clubs are not even open to go to visit other clubs because there are people from a migrant uh, background playing. So it already start, starts there. So if we normalize the, this also as an FA, um, there are so many ways to get out of, out of a fine. Um, that means that we, uh, we've already uh, given the, the, the signal to younger kids that um, there is an uh, end of otherism. So uh, we see um, uh, literally the, 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 the football club that you're playing against as the other and, and with the language that comes with it. So that's one. And two, uh, uh, I think that this is a serious problem uh, on, on grassroots. And, and, and Manu was mentioning uh, about on, on board level, um, you have to understand, I, I've been active in football for the last 15 years. Uh, I used to be uh, a member of an organization called Modern Football Foundation. And what we did was, um, from the Dutch FA, we, we did like programs. Programs in order to help uh, boards to understand uh, other clubs, because they've been run by people with a migrant background. And it was, it's really interesting if I now see the, this presentation from them from 15 years ago and I see what's going on still on this day. It, it shows that uh, if it doesn't have continuous uh, attention, that we're not battling anything. Uh, so that, that, that's, uh, well, that's one of the learnings I, um, I can share. share. Uh, and now about chanting, um, we normalize a lot of, uh, of chants. And I noticed that even the last game that I visit, um, in this case, it was Ajax. Uh, I was with friends and there, um, there are some kind of homophobic uh, chants, even it was in the, uh, in the papers, even at the Dutch net national uh, team uh, was playing and, uh, and it's national. So that means there are kids, there are, there are uh, grown uh, families 
uh, and they were uh, uh, chanting homophobic uh, chants. So and and the 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 Dutch FA, um, uh, it's got like a, some kind of ruling saying, well, if it's not continuously, then there's not so much we can do about it. But in my perspective, it's already one step too far. We we have to be really clear about this kind of um, of uh, of messaging. And I think that this is one of the, the, the main problems that we're facing, if we're talking about racism or discrimination, that we're not really clear about those messaging, that no, this is not okay within the stadium. And it's nothing to do with we're policing or anything like that, but it's not okay. And this is this is what we want uh, to to uh, share with everyone who is visiting the stadium. This is a safe environment for everyone who attends, on the pitch as well off the pitch. Mm-hmm. So if yeah, so if I listen to you carefully, I just try to also kind of sometimes summarize what you're saying. So on the one hand, I guess um, the the fact that within grassroots football, that's one of the things, John, that you mentioned. One of the, so the, the the fact that when you don't want to go to another club, um, um, and 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 what what do you mean with another club? Is that then is that uh, um, um, let's say a so-called white club that has to go to a club consisting of mainly of black kids, and then that white club doesn't want to go there? Is yeah, that what you mean? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's literally what I'm saying. I'm literally saying that there's a team with uh, mainly uh, white players, and they have to play against a team from uh, in Amsterdam West Side, where a lot of Moroccan and Turkish people living. So that means a team that reflects the people that live there, and um, they are just a, we're not playing against that team, uh, and mainly they are using different kind of language in order to say, well. We don't really want to visit them because, uh, uh, but they'll never. They will never say um, because of uh, racist motives. But they have other motives. But these motives are racist motives. So in the end, the FA has got nothing to, to fall back on because they're basically saying, okay, you're not going. You're getting fine. Or you get like an, uh, and, and then then it's over. Instead of finding out what's really going on, why uh, uh, clubs are not. Uh, playing towards or against each other. So from a young age onwards, children also learn that it's kind of accepted as long as you use other language than racial language. Well, actually, it comes down in the end to racism, but it, it's kind of accepted to not go to another club um, and it's kind of tolerated um, and no one really does anything against it. So young children already learn from a young age onwards that this can be done somehow and it's kind of... Um, yeah, kind of tolerated in in a way. But then the other thing that you're mentioning also the the um, and, and w- by the way, what you're what, what this shows, I guess, is also what Manu called the normalization of racism. Apparently, this is happening within clubs, and it's accepted, it's tolerated. No one can really do anything against it, and by doing so, you kind of normalize the, this behavior and these practices, which in the in the end means that you kind of normalize racist practices without men calling it racist. But but still, it's a racist practice, right? In the end, so exactly. so that. And the other thing you're exactly. saying is that I guess the the um, the chanting, and Manu also referred to the chanting, the language that being used within stages, but also within grassroots football. Um, there's not a clear, um, yeah. There's not much clarity. Exactly. On that, we do not tolerate this. It's kind of. 
there is this ambiguous space where, for instance, the football association, they say, well, yeah, the chanting, yeah, we heard it, but it stopped at a certain point, so we don't take measures. And 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 and, and they, while they should have said, no, it happened, and that's already too far, and therefore we we take a stance, and that is not what's happening. I also know that this this is indeed, uh, yeah, the case. Is it was again recently, uh, of course, again the case here in the Netherlands. And, and if just another thing, if because the the, the chanting, the let's say the. Um, the jungle noise that we talked about in the beginning of this podcast um, uh, against uh, a player, th- those are all explicit visible forms of racism. Um, however, as you know, I also do myself a lot of research um, uh, on the more implicit forms of racism, racial stereotyping, racial prejudice that very often... So those visible forms, they exist and they continue to exist. We try to combat it, but yeah, still it reveals itself. But then we have the more implicit ones that almost take place on a daily basis, perhaps even the stereotypes, uh, the language. Yeah. So what kind of I mean, in my research, for example, I I, I figured out that sometimes uh, in international research, the black players are seen as the natural quick players uh, and the uh, white uh, um, players are more often seen as the leaders or the captains. Right. Or the strategic or indeed strategic. Does, does does it does it sound familiar to you? I mean, in in terms of what you come across in your research or in your uh, uh, campaigning work for fair, can you say something about that? Well, okay, um, uh, yes, it's um, it's still going on. I know that you did research on media on media coverage. Um, uh, I notice still on daily. Uh, I'm I'm a football fan, so. I watch games uh, and it makes a difference if you uh, watch in uh, Belgium, Netherlands or uh, or the UK. Um, And and sometimes it's so subtle that um, uh, 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 um, people don't even realize that they are doing this. So I think that the subtlety, that's... I think one of the things that we need to keep on repeating that um, that this got like a bigger impact than most of the journalists uh, realize. So um, and that has to do with exactly what you just mentioned about yeah, but he's big and strong and and, and that's the notation with black and strategic. If we're talking about the midfielders and not the exceptions, because every time if I uh, have an uh, and a discussion with the journalists about this specific topic. They say, yeah, but look at that player. Because that player, I would never say that. But the thing is, it's more on general speaking. So you see like uh, the, the, the the strong, quick, uh, the fast, that's the, the, the black players. And um, and uh, before you know, it's a part of their, their it, it's a part of their language. So yeah, I, I can, um, I recognize it. Uh, Maybe I can add something from uh, an internship study that was uh, done with us. Student, he compared uh, the more central positions, as Jaco said, which are seen as the more intelligent, tactical uh, positions. Um, And he compared those to the more peripheral positions on uh, the outside, which are then seen um, as the positions where you need more strength uh, and speed. Um, and he looked at the highest divisions in the Netherlands um, and on the highest division um, for the males he actually saw that 60% of the uh, black players were playing on a peripheral position and only 40% on central positions 
while 20% of the white players were playing on the peripheral positions and 80% on the central positions. Um, and, um, and he also did some interviews additionally um, where uh, players, but also coaches and, and scouts also mentioned that um, uh, you also integrate um, those, those stereotypes and um, players already from a young age they are going to live up to those stereotypes because a, a black kid thinks that he is mainly seen um, for his strength and for his speed. So that are, are the qualities that he, that he or she then wants to develop more um, instead of also aiming for a more central position. Um, so there was a super interesting study, which um, I, I also saw this week, um, a recent study in Germany who also looked at that uh, positional segregation and they also see the the the, the same um, that we saw from the study in the Netherlands um, so it's definitely something that is um, yeah all over mm. I think I think um, it's uh, it's painful mm-hmm. uh, if I listen to this uh, Manu. Um, uh, also painful for the industry for the football industry because already on a young age um, if we're talking about talent, you're wasting so much talent only because of this. So it's not only it's it's stupid, it's dumb, and it's and it shows that um, uh, football's got like still a long way to go. Uh, and, and I'm not surprised with the outcome of your uh, of the research. It's 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 what I I see continuously. Also, uh, it means that. Uh, uh, scouts are looking at a certain way already then to uh, kids or youngsters. That means that um, the development from these youngsters are being um, without. So that's, that's mm. uh, yeah, it, it, it hurts me when I hear this because it shows how that means that takes a long time mm-hmm. if we don't really tackle this. A long time, how do you call it? Positioning segregation. Yeah, it has two terms, yeah. and I maybe Jakub can explain oh, I, I the difference. It. But it, it's called uh, stacking, stacking sometimes, yeah. or positional segregation. Positional segregation um, yes. But I'm not sure if there's uh, a, a clear difference between the two. No, it's indeed the, the, the research on on this stacking is similar, at least as far as I know, is similar to positional segregation. And quite some research has been done in the past, for instance, in the U.S., where the quarterbacks, right, in in, in football, in U.S. football. It was uh, in American football. It was uh, a position that requires intelligence and uh, tactics, and that was mainly reserved for the white uh, players, right? But this has, yeah, there has been research on that, and uh, in, in a way, this has changed over time in the U.S. But in in in, in football, in European football or soccer, there, um, yeah, indeed, um, the the recent study that that also that Manu just uh, mentioned shows that. Um, this, this positional segregation is very uh, much alive still in 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 in, in professional football, um, and and also, um, you know, it made me think of an interview uh, well, two to three years ago in England that I did with a with a football player. Uh, it was a um, uh, English Caribbean football player, black football player on amateur level, but quite uh, higher uh, up on in the amateur game, and he told me that that. Um, that he is fast. He told me that he is a fast player. He's quick, but he plays in the midfield. And he told me that um, he consciously, when he is playing, he he is aware that he shouldn't run too fast because if he runs too fast, then the coach will think, okay, this is a black player. He's a black player. He's fast. 
I put him on the wings, on the peripheral positions. And he said, I don't want that. I don't want to be in the midfield. So it he very much tries not to run too fast. Well, he can run fast, right? Which is amazing in a, ga- in a game. So I was kind of this, this entire... Um, Stacking or positional segregation is, is is yeah it's amazing if you hear such a story from a person who really yeah. uh, tries not to run fast uh, otherwise he he's afraid that the stereotype of a black player being fast makes him makes the coach decide um, that he should be on the sides of on the peripheral position. Yeah, it, it's a missed opportunity. It's a missed business opportunity. That's what I found bizarre. It's bizarre that that uh, where. Uh, we're missing out so much on talent if if we keep on doing this. So th- I believe that this should get far more attention, um, especially when there is a, a lot of um, uh, energy going on the seek of talent. So it's 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 yeah. Anyway, I, I would love it that the um, um, uh, the research would be uh, more discussed with the, the professionals, because I believe that there is a massive opportunity to, to, to change the game for all different perspectives. And it's only, it's good for clubs, it's good for national teams, and in the end, it's better for society. Yeah, I, what I also um, find from an academic perspective, what it shows me is that we have this certain idea about racial categorizations like blackness, whiteness, and we have certain characteristics that we associate with it, like blackness, we associate with with power and strength, uh, whiteness with maybe technical capacities, etc. And that we use these stereotypes, these frames, we, we, we attach it to players, even though those players may not, may they, they may have very different qualities, but still from a young age, we attach those qualities. So it shows to me also how race... Um, yeah, comes into the picture almost when talking about football. Well, actually, it shouldn't be relevant, but it's come into the picture and coaches and scouts use it. And then players start living up to that expectation, right? If you as a player may hear from a young age onwards, well, you should be on the wings because you are fast. Maybe you want to improve on that aspect in particular, like Manu also said. And then in the end, maybe you become fast and you are there on the wings, which again reinforces that already existing stereotype. So, right, it's... And and I think one of the quest one of the things mentioned in the in this research also Manu I guess mm-hmm. that the captains this person also did research on captains who are the captains right in the on the pitch didn't he do that something like that yeah so so that um, I don't know the exact numbers uh, by head but indeed um, when you look at the captains the majority of the captains is white um, and the majority of captains play on central p- positions so that goes hand in hand. And uh, what we talked about earlier um, about um, uh, the the whiteness um, um, in leadership positions, then you see again the relationship uh, because many people in leadership positions, the coaches, board members that come from football, um, a lot of them um, are already trained in quotation marks um, um, as such because they already were a captain while they were playing so they were already seen as the smart ones uh, as the 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 ones that have that insight and the tactics and then it's also easier to get into um, the leadership position after your active career Um, so there you also see how everything is is so attached to each other um, and what makes the racist in the racism in football so institutional as well 
Yeah, and I think that that uh, institutionalized part, that's the thing that we should really focus on um, and not um, uh, focus on the exception because in the Dutch national team, we got Virgil van Dijk before. So, um, and and that gives people the, 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 the idea, there is no problem. But the thing is, what you just mentioned, if you look at all the leadership positions are all uh, that's what i love about the research if you look at broader then you see that it's a different ball game so it's not the exception and everybody is looking at the exception and i see that uh, a, lot, a lot of times at national teams and another thing we have to be really aware is the fact that you be a high profile player doesn't mean anything uh, within the professional coaching uh, positions. We saw, we seen that in the Netherlands. Uh, we got like high profile players, uh, Elka Davids, uh, Clarence Seedorf, uh, uh, Kluivers is maybe one of the exceptions that went to um, a position after, afterwards as uh, assistant of Van uh, Gaal. Um, but if you look at how many players are high profile, they've been playing uh, international cup like Champions League trophies, everything like that, and you see now where they are within the football uh, family, it's painful. It's seriously painful. And so even if you were the captain then, it's still not an um, an reassurance that you're going to be getting that. Uh, that position, and that has all to do with network, being uh, uh, having the the right the right persons at that level. Well, that's you researched that uh, uh, before, uh, Jaco. But have we seen that? Seen this not only in the Netherlands, we've seen the UK, we see it in France. There, are, it's only for a few few players. So a lot of work. Uh, to be done on that field as well. What would it also mean? Just an idea, right? I, I haven't researched this, but it just comes up now that we're discussing this. Would it mean, for example, that the Football Association in, in the Netherlands, let's say, that they should take a look at, let's say, Virgil van Dijk as the captain of the Dutch team and also in, or stimulate him or provide him with resources to also grow to be a leader, to be a coach, given that he's already a captain and seen in that way. I mean, should should it more should they take a more active approach or should they just leave it, you know, take a more passive approach? Uh, in the end, of course, it's up to the player, but should should could there be a more active approach from the association or not? What do you think? Yeah, 100%, of course, there should be programs, of course. I mean, as you acknowledge that there is, uh, that we are lacking on that field, well, we should do something about it. And that gives a lot of players at least the possibility. I think that the Dutch FA is afraid that they uh, enforce positive discrimination. And uh, that's the form of quota. I mean, we, ha- we had that uh, discussion with FA as well. So I, I think um, acknowledging that, um, uh, because it's not only the FA, it's by the clubs as well. There is an idea uh, what a leader or what a coach should be or what their future leaders, uh, future uh, managers uh, should look like. And to be honest, um, how many um, managers already or head coaches are they in the Dutch, in the highest Dutch division? There are still only one or two. And when you did your research eight or ten years ago, there were two at that time as well. So they just changed, but there are different names. And it's the same we see in the UK. So uh, if you are now Virgil van Dijk, I mean, 
whatever he wants to do after his like he's now doing his fine his best in uh, his professional uh, players uh, but what are his um uh, his examples it's not rep- it, i mean the coaching is still not the coaching position are not uh, representative let me give you one example and i think uh, i'm getting enthusiastic as you can hear uh, if we're looking at the dutch national uh, national uh, team we uh, a few years ago uh, we had like an whole uproar because of um, uh, an, um, uh, we got like a, a Dutch national coach or well, at least we were even for a Dutch national coach and there was a whole debate yeah but if there is uh, uh, if we're doing soliciting we need to be aware uh, there are black um, coaches as well so and, that, and and we at least we had that debate we're not having that debate right now not at all. And it's interesting that even, I mean, um, um, Kuman is fantastic. He's now the, the future. Van Gaal is now and he will be the future natural coach. But the interesting thing is, if you want to do things right and you want leading by example, at least make it an open, transparent uh, process. And this is one of the things that's not going on right now. So, uh, I mean, the, the Dutch... I think the Dutch audience are okay with it because of Koeman's his, uh, his successes with the Dutch national team. But you have to understand that the FA has got like an, an, uh, an obligation towards the Dutch national, uh, his players and also his future coaches. That there is a chance for you to be in that position as well. And, and I think the moment that this kind of processes are not internalized, it's still behind closed doors. So in my perspective, at this moment, if you're asking me if the Dutch Natural Association is doing the right job, my answer is no. And I see a lot of these processes are open. So what does that mean if you're, if you're talking about the, the highest division of Dutch? Uh, well, it happens in the same, same way. And they're saying, hey, on the Dutch national level, it happens as well. Does the Dutch FA does it too? So why why would we change that process? Yeah, I think that the, the, the what I what I see happening is indeed the fact that uh, they almost automatically hire a white coach. The, what ha- what happens then is that the uh, the entire idea of a leader being white is reproduced and strengthened. So it doesn't change that 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 dominant idea. And actually, like you said, Jan, I mean, this happens in the Netherlands, but we have done uh, indeed European wide research in 2014, uh, which which Fair also uh, supported, right at the time. And now we're doing this again. Uh, quite yeah, later this year, another report will come out on the European scale, and not not so much has changed in terms of the whiteness of leadership and coaching in Europe in all these years. So and and that's on the European scale. We're talking about the Netherlands a moment ago. But also within Europe, it's just, it kind of you see similarities with amongst the countries. Um, Manu, just about about your, your because I think that Mulier Institute also um, knows a lot about uh, um, it is also the 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 plans uh, made by the football associations to combat racism, right? They so basically in 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 2019, after racism happened on the pitch, which got a lot of media attention in the Netherlands, the Dutch Football Association and the ministries, there are several ministries. They started to invest 14 million euros to combat racism. And internationally speaking, this is quite unique, I think, to invest that much money for racism for the coming three years. What, what, can you say something about what, what, what are these plans? What kind of what, what, what does it consist of? 
Um, and is it also maybe something that can be an example internationally? Mm-hmm. Um, one other remark, I just looked it up there. Are, um, the internship study was last year um, in the season 2021. There were 14 white captains and one black captain. Um, Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Um, on the highest male um, division. Um, but yeah, on the plans of the uh, F- the Dutch FA, um, so it has uh, four main themes that they focus on. Um, it's on collaborations, on prevention, signaling and sanctioning. Um, and it is um, discrimination wide, so it doesn't only focus on uh, racism. Um, and each of the themes has several actions that they work on. Um, so, for example, as part of prevention, um, they are um, educating officials and enforcement uh, through workshops on inclusive action. Um, but uh, as part of signaling, they have created an app uh, that can be used to report uh, discrimination uh, uh, and discriminating behavior on the field and also in stadiums. Um, and they are also investing in smart technology to identify perpetrators of discriminatory behavior in stadiums. Um, and as part of sanctioning, they are working on uh, improving and strengthening possibilities for enforcing penalties. Um, so there's quite uh, a, a lot that they are, are covering. And I think that's definitely one of the innovative uh, aspects of, of the plan that it's not only focusing on supporters of only focusing on um, um, on penalties, but it's but that it, it covers a lot. Also, that it doesn't only cover racism, but discrimination in in a broad sense, um, and also the the collaboration with the ministry. I think makes that it has quite broad support uh, on a national level. Um, so yeah, I I think there's a lot that can be learned uh, from it. Also, what you were just talking about they are also um, um, actively trying to include uh, more coaches of ethnic minority backgrounds in their training uh, program for coaches on a professional level Um, and yeah the plans they were three years so they end at the end of this year Um, so we are dying to see what's gonna uh, happen after and if they can um, um, some of the actions have already a sustainable character, um, but some definitely uh, um, can use more sustainable implementation. Yeah, one one aspect that I want to uh, also, uh, as a last topic, want to discuss, which I think is not so much mentioned in the plans, and I, I, I'm really curious also to hear what you how you reflect on that. I mean, they do use this 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 app to report racism, so they are aware of technological advancements. However, when we talk about technological advancements in general. Um, online forms of racism, right, they are increasing. Uh, We see this basically happening within Europe, although not much research has been done on this. There's a lack of research on this. I'm surprised that the plans from the Dutch FA, that they don't mention online forms of racism. Maybe it was too early for that in 2019. I'm not sure. But uh, how do you see this? I, I, I think it's one of the main challenges for football nowadays to challenge online forms of racism. Uh, the thing is, we did some research uh, on the Horizon project with uh, from Fair, uh, only to um, uh, I don't know if you if you were aware, uh, Jaco and Manu. Um, so um, uh, with text gang in Belgium, and um, uh, to find out 
uh, what the effect are uh, online overtone by online racism. Uh, what, I think that the Dutch FA is really aware, but the thing is, um, it is the reflect that I hear from on the European scale. What the FAs are mainly are saying is, these are this 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 is outside our uh, jurisdiction. It's the same as outside the stadium. So and basically they're pointing the finger towards the social uh, companies, social media companies. They have, they have Facebook, the Twitters, and the Instagrams, and everything like that. And um, I think it's a big problem. Uh, I think it's a big problem and it's getting more momentum. Uh, and um, uh, the real question behind it is, uh, is um, are there prevention programs in place, uh, which the FA can do with the players and anything like that, in order to combat this? I think that that's one of the... Um, uh, uh, I'm not saying solutions, but at least... This will help. It, it, you're not ignoring it, but at least you're acknowledging it. Um, so that's that's one of my takeouts. And the, another thing is, Manu was just mentioning. What what do you mean with prevention, John? Just one question. What do you mean with prevention programs? Uh, prevention. Well, prevention program for me is there are ways to signaling that people who are. Uh, targeting on players or uh, players from uh, an uh, minority background who are playing in the national team or are playing on Champions League level, that um, that you, on their platform uh, that you can start with fan programs or with clubs or and that, that kind of programs to make people aware. So there's uh, aware, but combating itself, it's to, it takes a totally different approach. That's not something that the, the national FA or... Uh, but at least they can acknowledge that the problem is there. So that's one of the reasons why I love the programs. There's one thing that I want want to react on, and that's what Manu just was mentioning about the app. I think one of the problems that I have with the app is the willingness to, um, to report. I think that this is... This is for me the main problem. I think um, that's why I'm happy that there is some development that uh, players are uh, reporting to the police uh, because it shows that something is being done. Uh, I think having an app is a way to say, listen, it's, to, it's, it's up to you. I think the, uh, the willingness to report is one of the biggest uh, uh, challenges for an FA, but also uh, for, for, for clubs. It shows we really want you to report what's going on. And I think till till that app was in place, people weren't willing to report. It doesn't matter if it's on grassroots level, level or professional level. So now the app is there. It, 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 there is a responsibility from the FA, but also from the whole football family to show, listen, if you report, something will be done with it. I think that this signal should be really far more strongly forced. So that's the thing that, I, and then it will show in research because that's then the effect uh, that something is being done and that uh, behavior at least will be uh, Im improved within brackets. Uh, well, we see it uh, more and more, and one of the main issues um, is the anonymity. So people can say on football. Of football forums they can say whatever they want they can share their unfiltered opinion um, and no one knows uh, who they are um, what we 
see happening is that certain media, certain forums, um, they are deleting, um, discriminating um, um, comments, or some forums are uh, deleting the ability to comment uh, in general. Um, but definitely, um, no one, because it's such a new paradigm, um, nationally and internationally, we really have to figure out what the, the right way is to deal with it. And what we uh, saw last year in the UK, for example, that they an announced uh, a social media boycott because of uh, online uh, abuse. Um, but also recently, uh, one of the perpetrators of racial uh, social media comments um, after the Euro final um, got actually sentenced to six weeks imprisonment um, after posting uh, the comments um, in the UK. Um, so, well, that's a start, but we really have to see how this is going to be picked up nationally and internationally. Um, and again, that's uh, definitely not on the prevention side, which is also a very important one. The just um, to go back to the general question, because we're coming to an end. Um, the, the general starting question was how does race and ethnicity, how, how, how do race and ethnicity gain meaning within European football in the 21st century? But also, yeah, how does racism in football manifest itself um, and what can we do against it? So just a final comment from both of you that would be great for the future. Like what main thing should be done um, to combat racism? Because we can discuss many aspects of racism, but what main things should be done to combat racism, let's say in the coming five years? Let's take it for a yeah, relatively short-term period. Well, what should we do? What should we do? What should the Football Association do? What should players do? Can you give one advice? Each of Manu, can I start perhaps with, with you? Uh, no pressure. Unfortunately, you, you added the last bit with uh, players and uh, associations because I was actually thinking more also in the line of what can researchers do as I'm a researcher. Um, and I think we have a responsibility to get a lot more data. There's still a lot, a lot of unknowns. Um, and for example, when we talked about the, the stacking, the positional segregation, um, uh, but also just now about s social media, uh, we don't have a lot of numbers yet. And unfortunately, we see that numbers uh, um, are often important um, as a means to get something done. So I think that's definitely a thing. Um, but I think when we when uh, you ask the question more general, what can people do? Um, I think we all of us have a long way to go in um, acknowledging the um, the, um, uh, the the presumptions that we have, and everybody has them, um, and we need to become aware of them so we can also act on them. Um, and that's something that definitely the the people in the leadership positions um, have to do, so they can also be open to implement the necessary actions. But I think that's also something that we as researchers have to do. We also have to look at the diversity that there is amongst researchers, which is, which is generally low. Um, so I think that's definitely a point of attention. Yeah, thanks a lot. So both uh, from the research side and more from the football structural side, uh, yeah, a variety of things that should be done. Thanks for that, Manu. John, can I also um, yeah, ask you the same question as a closing question for the future? Like what, what should be done to to challenge and combat uh, racism in football? Uh, for me, it's, um, uh, I think that Manu said a lot. 
Thank you, Manu. Uh, fantastic uh, uh, remarks. I think um, uh, one of the big problems is that we make a lot of plans. And uh, I, believe, I believe we should act. Act more uh, and enforce more. I think there is a lot already in place. I'm happy that uh, um, uh, players are standing up for each other. I think that helps. I think on leadership positions, make more aware that uh, the, uh, the, the landscape should change. It's the future. I mean, don't do it only for yourself, but think about the next generation. They are aware. Um, and if we're talking about FAs, it's the same debate. I think that we're still lacking on that point. Uh, stop making plans, act, act, act. That's, that's for me all, because I think the plan's already there uh, and it's more about enforcing. That's why I gave the example about our national team, the coaching. The same is with on club niveau, on club level, same as on coaching. If we're looking at the place, you were there. We had a 10-point plan uh, already eight years ago. Uh, we said, oh, Europe, yes, on 10 points we can make improvement. We're eight years further and nothing really improved. And that has also to do that it's not a high on the priority list. So it would help if we, uh, we put a higher on our, uh, on our priority list, on FAs, on, uh, on club level and act instead of making plans. Yeah, that, those are great. Uh, yeah, I think great last comments from both of you. I, it also makes me think of academic article uh, by by Ahmed, Sarah Ahmed, who says that organizations sometimes make these anti-racism plans and by only doing that, they think they are already doing anti-racism, right? By only making the plans on paper and 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 then, then they forget indeed to follow up on the plans and act, right? Because they say, yeah, but we have it on paper. Look, we're doing really well. Well, it's only paper. And, and yeah, so that makes me think of that last comment, Jan. Thanks for that. Um, now, thanks for this inspiring and also very insightful conversation. Uh, yeah, I learned a lot from you. Uh, it was a good conversation. I hope the, the, the people listening to this also learned a lot. And, and what I also take from this, and that's really also when we discuss so many things, they also inter they all interrelate. They're all I mean, if we talk about the assumptions about race, if we talk about the language, that translates into stereotypes, that translates into scouting, and that translates into on what positions players are, you know, playing. I mean, and and and, and that again means who is the captain of the team. And that again means who will become the future leader. And that all, you know is part of this entire football industry. So that kind of how these things are connected is one of the things that I take away, which is also discouraging, right? Because where do you start combating? But I think on all these different aspects, it needs to work. Um, so thanks a lot, um, uh, Manu Anselma and John Oliveira. Uh, my name was Jacob Sterkenberg. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot for listening to this. Thank you.